Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, and we are continuing through our series called Working Together for the Gospel. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word. You will find it on page 6 of your bulletin, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. This is God's Word. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, lift your hands with me in prayer. Father, we pray that right now you would fill these empty hands with knowledge and grace from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would nourish us. We pray that you would equip us. We pray that you would help us to live faithfully in the world as a result of sitting under your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. An article in the New York Times has called us the United States of Xanax. Xanax is a medication for anxiety, in case you are not aware. One podcast aimed at millennials is called Generation Anxiety. Two recent best-selling books are titled My Age of Anxiety and Monkey Mind. Anybody in here got Monkey Mind? I don't even know what it is, but I think I got it. Monkey Mind. We swipe endlessly, endlessly at our smart devices. How many times have you been in a conversation and all of a sudden it's ding, bzz, bzz, oh man, oh man. Endlessly at our smart devices that will constantly feed us apocalyptic headlines from the news. Our social media pages are choked with tragedies. It's no wonder that studies have found links between online culture and anxiety. New terms are being developed to describe the age in which we live. Terms such as quarter-life crisis. A quarter-life crisis to describe the stress and the anxiety that 20-somethings are trying to figure through. Fresh out of college, quarter-life anxieties, quarter-life, what do they call it, quarter-life crisis. 
Some of y'all have had five of them already. <laughs> and a simple observation of our week-to-week rhythm reveals high levels of anxiety and stress. You may not even be able to pinpoint it. You may not, it just may be a rogue kind of anxiety. It's just a low-grade, constant anxiety that completely hangs over your life. It's like a cloud. You know, when you're flying, you know, when you're, when you're on the ground, the clouds look so solid, like you can identify them, but when you're on an airplane and you fly up into it, it never actually looks like anything substantive. Anxiety hangs over our lives. And many of us probably feel like we live in some of the most anxious times there ever were. We might think that there's something special about our anxious times. It's probably likely, given that, that so many of us think that there's so much special about us. We think our anxiety is special. But the first century church was facing anxieties of their own. They were an oppressed minority in society. They were vulnerable to the gross slander of their neighbors and sometimes mob violence. They knew that on a whim, government authorities could break down their doors, imprison them, and imperil their lives. Their beloved leader was in jail, waiting to stand trial for his very life. And not only this, they had opponents who who were coming into their community. They were infiltrating their community. Toxic people were infiltrating their community and trying to drag them away from the truth of the gospel. There were conflicts erupting in their community. They were at one another's throats. This was a community that formerly was very active in the, in the spreading of the gospel and in the building of God's kingdom, but now they have all of these anxieties hanging over their lives. Conflicts within their community were throwing them off of their calling. And yet, here's the deal. As we read through this letter of Philippians, as we've been working through it, we see that even in the midst of very anxious times, they were still called to participate in extending the kingdom of God and in making the gospel go forth in their particular place. The reality, friends, is that life in this broken and sinful world for us right now is no more anxious than it has ever been in any other place at any other time. Because at the bottom of it all is the same human condition, the same concerns. The anxieties that come to us through our smart devices are no different than the farmer who was waiting to see if it's actually going to rain on his crops and he's going to be fed with his family and make his living and be able to go to market. Same anxieties are underneath. The same concerns about life and well-being and progress and society, justice were on the minds of people back then, just as they are now. But we're left with a question. We are left with a question, friends, and it's this. How can we be a good news people in a bad news world? How can we be a good news people in a bad news world? Will the bad news cause us to obscure the good news? Will the bad news 
grace that comes to us through various channels choke out our grip on the good news that we have on the pages of Scripture and in the pages of our life. The call, my friends, is the same to us as it was to the Philippians. To live in the midst of anxious times, holding out the peace of God, the hope of God, the grace and love of God through the gospel of God. That's our call. Our call doesn't go away because we have anxious times and busy lives. But what I want you to see is this. Every Sunday morning when you walk in here with your real lived experience, with the real trials and struggles and victories and defeats that you are facing in your life right now, every Sunday morning that you come in here, you need to know that there is a word from the Lord. God has spoken. God has not left us without the resources that we need to live in the midst of anxious times, to live faithfully in a crooked day. He, he hasn't left us without the resources to live the life of love. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to, I want to jump into our text very briefly, but I want to give us something to reflect on. Because listen, I know that there's a tendency for us to rush from headline to headline and to be reactionary as a community for fear of facing the harsh words of people who think that we don't care about these things. But here's the deal. We stay on message every Sunday about what we need to be, what we need to become, and what we need to be doing. And so this message is apropos for the times. It's about the peace of God. We need to be equipped with the peace of God. And what I want us to see this morning, two points. Paul's answer for how we can be a good news people in a bad news world is this. We need to nurture the inner life and we need to practice the presence of God. That's what we're going to talk about today. We need to nurture the inner life and we need to practice the presence of God. Because this is how we are going to authentically press on in the works and deeds of love. This is how we're going to continue to do good in this world as, as, as God's people. We must have the reality underneath. And so let's look at our text for this morning as we consider our first point. We must nurture the inner life. Now, after Paul professes his love for these dear friends in verse 1, and after he calls them to stand firm, he then begins to engage two particular women publicly who were having a very public conflict. And it was disrupting the work in the community. So he calls them to agree in the Lord. They might not agree politically, but they had to agree in the Lord. They may not share the same ethnic background, but they had to agree in the Lord. He's calling them to the priority of their union with one another as they work together for the gospel. And he calls in a friend who's obviously playing a, a reconciliation role between the two of them. He calls them to unity. Get on the same page. Agree in the Lord. And then after this, he begins to encourage them in particular directions. What does your life need to look like? How do you work this out? Because remember, we're flowing out of the passage from last week in which he tells us that we are citizens of heaven. 
And that citizenship is supposed to shape the way we live as citizens of earthly countries. That is the citizenship of priority. And citizenship in heaven does not mean that we're, we're happily waiting for the day where God is just going to zap us up out of this world. No, because that's not the way that Philippian, who, Philippians, who were citizens of Rome, would have thought about their Roman citizenship. They weren't expecting to go live in Rome one day. They knew they were responsible for living out Roman citizenship in Philippi right now. And if anything ever jumped off conflicts, war, anything, they knew that the king of Rome was coming to make things right. And so he says, you are citizens of heaven and you await a savior. Conflict and war and everything might be coming up right now. But your responsibility is to live as faithful citizens right now, knowing that the king is going to come and make all things right. He's not taking us out of the world. He's renewing this world. New heavens, new earth. We are going to live here in a renewed state. And so we are to work to that greater end. Now, what does it look like for us to live this out in some more practical ways? That's what Paul's doing in this passage. Look at the text. He comes back to this repeated theme, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Again, don't let it be lost on you that this word of rejoicing is coming from a man who's sitting in prison in Rome awaiting a trial where he may be convicted and executed for his Christian faith. And he offers the strong word to his friends who are struggling with anxiety. He says, rejoice. And I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. What, Paul? Yeah, again, rejoice. In the Lord. He's attaching their joy to their union with Christ and not to their external circumstances. He says, You are to be a people characterized by joy. The first words out of your mouth are not to be cynicism and complaining and bitterness and woe is me for the life I got to live. Guilty, 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 guilty. I'm pointing to me for those listening on audio. We know what it's like to rush there, but he says rejoice. Be a people of joy. And then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. There are various translations of this word. I actually prefer gentleness. Let, let, let your tone among other people be known. That you're, you're, the, you're a sticky community because your tone... There's something resonant and beautiful and attractive about your tone. Just, these are just staccato statements about the kind of people we're supposed to be. And then he just drops this in there. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Then he just says this. The Lord is at hand. God is near. This is to shape who we are, the presence of God. But then he begins to move into what I want to focus on this morning. He turns to the interwoven themes of anxiety, prayer, peace, and protection. These are the interwoven themes that follow in the next two verses. Anxiety, prayer, peace, and protection. Verses 6 through 7, check them out in your bulletin. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is creating a connection in these verses between prayer, the peace of God, and the protection of your heart. He's drawing a connection between prayer, the peace of God, and the protection of your heart. You see this in the text. He's essentially saying that the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Now here's the deal, and I want to I give big pictures. I'm not saying that prayer is a magic pill that you take that makes all of your troubles go away. Prayer is not just coming with requests. It's coming to communion with God. And this is where we're going to go. In prayer, we're reminded that God cares more about our lives than we do. He cares more about our world than we do. We're reminded in the context of prayer and communion with God that he's governing the course of this world in immeasurable wisdom. He's ordering the course of the world according to his perfect timing. Listen, just like I was cooking with my kids. I like to cook with my kids because I'm a glutton for punishment. I was cooking with my kids and they kept wanting, we were making something, I put it in the oven. And they kept saying, when's it gonna be done? Can't we just take it out now? Man, Dad, can you just take it out now? And look, I got enough sense to know that how to put these ingredients together and I know in, in the right timing, this thing's gonna come out and it's gonna be good. But they're trying to rush it. They're trying to get it out of the heat. They're trying to get it out of the fire because they don't know about the idea of perfect timing in order to produce the outcome I want. Do you know that God does not keep you in the fire any longer than is required to form you more into the likeness of his son? God does not keep these kinds of circumstances around us any longer than it takes to accomplish his holy will in your life. He wants something else more than what your comfort may be. He's after something more precious. He's after deepening faith. He's after your joy, your hope, your love. He's after your stability. He's after your maturity. He wants to strengthen you. And he knows exactly how long to keep you in the difficult circumstances in order to achieve that result. He has the wisdom there. He's not going to keep you there longer than it takes to accomplish his will. And in prayer, we're reminded that God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. I'm going to say that again. God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. And we're reminded of this chiefly when we look at the cross. He permits what he hates, the rending of his relationship with his son. His son is cast from his presence and he hates it, but he loves the work of redemption and restoration and resurrection more. And he's going to raise that relationship back up. He's going to restore everything that was broken. He loves that bigger picture and he permits what he hates. My kids, when we cook, always want to taste the ingredients. And if you do any cooking, you know that sometimes the ingredients by themselves aren't very good. By themselves, they're not very good. Fat man wanted to try cayenne one time. So I indulged him. 
he didn't want to eat it anymore. And in fact, he, he wasn't sure that the, the outcome was going to be good. But he couldn't tell. Like, once you take all of these separate incidents and you put them together in a recipe, no one wants to sit there and eat raw eggs. But if you put all of these ingredients together, you mix them together in the hands of the right person, they can come out on the other side and be something incredible. Now listen, you may not like certain things that are going on in your life right now, but it's just an ingredient in the hands of the master. You might be going through different trials right now and hardships. Work may be squeezing you. Kids may be pressing you. Neighborhood may be violent right now. But if you take all of these ingredients and know that they're in the hands of God and that he's going to bring something out at the end, then you can rest assured right now. You can have peace right now. This is what prayer does. It puts you in the right context. Prayer, friends, does not relieve you of your part. It simply tells you you need to stop playing God's part. You see, most of our anxiety comes from the fact that we're trying to play God's part. We're trying to control things. We're trying to manipulate circumstances. And all of our stress and anxiety is coming because control is always beyond our reach. But we fret about controlling it. And we can't. We don't need to play God's part. Prayer reminds us that God is playing his part. He always has. But it, it, it energizes our ability to play our part. Paul knew that those who pray well work well. He knew that those who pray most achieve the most profound results. And here's the deal. We will not achieve a fraction of the work through our anger that we would accomplish through our prayers. We will not accomplish a fraction of the work that we, that we accomplish through our venting that we would accomplish through our prayers. We would not enjoy a fraction of the peace through our complaining to human beings that we would have through praying to God. You know that? We spend our time with the least effective resources. We spend more time complaining to people than we do talking to God, who can actually do something about it, in whose presence is joy and comfort and rest. This is our God. Much of our anxiety as Christians comes in the fact that we're trying to achieve God-sized results without God. You cannot achieve God-sized results without God. Do you, do you hear me? Prayer is saying, I need God in order to achieve God-sized results in my life and in the world. You can't fight for justice without God. Where are you going to go? First of all, where are you getting the, the, the axioms and the foundations of what constitutes justice? And then where are you getting the resources to persevere in love and not hate and not bitterness and not cynicism? Where are you getting the resources to forgive and create a just and stable society for everybody without this grace and this gospel? Do you see this? You need God to achieve God-sized results. And prayer says, I, I need you, God. We need you in order to, to see this come to pass. But as I said earlier, the most significant aspect of prayer is communion. Prayer is not just about coming to God for a change of circumstances. In prayer, it's not just our circumstances that change, it's us. We change in prayer. 
Sometimes the circumstances don't change, but you can guarantee that when you live in a spirit of prayer, you will change. You will change. God is out for the relationship. Prayer is not primarily about what you can get from God because the best gifts that God has to offer are never detached from him. The real gift is him, friends. God is the gift. His presence is the gift. There is no thing floating around out there called joy that is detached from God. There is no thing out there floating around called peace that is detached from God. God says, I am willing to give you everything. So just come to me because I am everything. Everything you need is in me. Everything we need is in him. And prayer is coming to steep in the goodness of God. It's coming to steep in the promises of God. It's coming to steep in the presence of God. That's what prayer is most most about. It's about coming to God, not just for changed circumstances, which we are free to bring those requests to God. But it's really even more about coming to God for a changed you. We should want both at at certain times. And in other times, we may just need to ask for a changed me. You cannot have the peace of God without proximity to God. That's what the point is here. You must be near in your soul to him. God is everywhere. God is present. But our hearts can be situated in such a way that we are not present to him. And prayer is a reorientation there. Because here's the deal. You will not deeply trust a person with, to, that you don't spend any time with. You won't. You don't, you don't trust people you don't spend time with. And it's the same thing with God. Our faith, our trust in God is directly shaped by our communion with him. We must spend time with him. And the more we spend time with him, the more we begin to discover all the reasons why he is trustworthy and reliable and faithful. We come into the time of prayer and we're reminded. Do you notice why Paul throws in thanksgiving? We come in thanksgiving in this time of prayer because thanksgiving is tuning our hearts to remember all that God has already done on our behalf, and it is framing up the future of life with him. If you know that in your past is a track record of the Lord's faithfulness, is a stellar resume of good things that God has done for you and in you and through you, then when you come to prayer and communion with God now, it helps you to have assurance, no matter what's going on around you, that your father cares for you, and this is your father's world. Do you see? It's in that time of communion that we change, and we can see that there are Christians through history and in time whose peace did not rely upon the circumstances around them being changed. They asked for the changes, but the changes didn't come, but that did not disturb their peace. 
This text, it says the peace of God. The peace of God is about the peace that God has in himself. Who The, the triune God, undisturbed. God's not wringing his hands up there. What happened in Charlottesville? Oh my goodness. God's not wringing his hands about the tragedies in this world. It's all part of his recipe for renewal. Faith can see that even though I can't work it out, God has it worked out. God's not wringing his plans, and as I live, wringing his hands, and as I live in communion with him, his peace invades my soul. This is what the text is suggesting here. And most significantly in verse 7, check it out, look at the text. This promise about God's peace guarding the Philippians is not dependent on the granting of their concrete requests. Do you see? Look at the text. Here's the text here. I'm not trying to oversimplify. I'm trying to tell you what the text says. How we work this out and how we reconcile things, that comes in the context of dialogue. But let's not reject what is plainly stated in the text. He says, you don't have to be anxious about anything, but in everything, make, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of God. When I lay it at the feet of the God who cares for me, when I lay it at the feet of the one who sacrificed his own son for me, when I lay it at the feet of the one who has thrown my sins into the sea of forgetfulness, when I lay it at the feet of the one who created this world in beauty, who saw it fall into decay and committed to restoring it, when I lay it at the feet of this God, I have assurance that he's going to work it out. And that he is good and that he will see it through to something more beautiful. Just like the, the nightmare accentuates the goodness of what you have when you awake from it. So we will awake from the nightmare of this sin-broken world into glory. And all of that nightmare that we have lived will enhance the joy that we will in, it, it be living in in eternity. We lay it at the feet of this God. And then look at the text. It said, and the peace of God, check it out, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, remember, he's talking to a group of people in the city of Philippi. This was a military outpost. Philippians saw soldiers marching around all the time, all around their city. Their city was heavily guarded. It was protected. And Paul uses that military language, and he says, when you live in a spirit of prayer, when you lay your concerns and your cares at the feet of this God, his peace gets around your heart and defends your heart like those Roman soldiers do. When the anxieties are trying to press through, the peace of God defends your heart from the attacks. When you're concerned about paying the bills and what you're going to do for retirement and what's going to happen with your kids' schooling, try to break in on your heart. The peace of God resists those, those thoughts of anxiety when you live in a spirit of prayer. The peace of God defends your heart, surrounds your heart like a garrison of soldiers. You can live with a protected heart through prayer. The idea is this, friends. Prayer keeps your mind from becoming enemy-occupied territory. Prayer keeps your mind from becoming enemy-occupied territory because here's where the battlefield often lies, in your mind and in your affections and your loves. And when you are attacked in this point, that, that determines everything else about the kind of life you will live and the kind of person you will become. 
The encouragement here is, is that we are empowered as God's people to live in the peace of God through communion with him in prayer. And we can know that our hearts are guarded by that peace. Peace that surpasses understanding. That's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful phrase. But there is another aspect to nurturing the inner life here. And it's in verses 8 through 9. Look at this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Consider this text in light of our common practice of thinking on the falsities and the lies of the evil one. Consider our practice of mulling over the evil possibilities. How we focus and think and meditate more on the evils of this world than the goodness of the promises of the God who will end those evils. You see this? He's saying direct your mind here. Now listen, should you be surprised if you meditate on the evil of this world all day, you gobble down the, the, the horrific tragedies on your social media timeline like 20 times a day, right? Let's be real. You're on there checking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You meditate on that day and night, and then you expect to live in the peace of God? It doesn't compute. He's saying, look, Christians, as I said last week, aren't the kind of people who bury their heads in the sand and don't pay attention to the brokenness of this world. They're not the kind of people who live in a constant state of rage about the evil in this world. And they're not the kind of people that make friendship with the evil of this world. They do allow the evil of the world to break their hearts. And then from a place of brokenheartedness, they're able to move forward in action. But this is the additional piece here. We must combat all of the evil in this world, all of the tragedy in this world, all of the disappointment of this world, all of the losses of this world. We must combat those things with these thoughts, the true there's an expiration date on that evil. It's true because Jesus says, I make all things new. Those tears won't be forever because he's going to wipe every tear from our eye. That loneliness isn't going to be here forever because even now God is present with his people. No, sin doesn't have the last word. No, death doesn't have the last word. No, the devil doesn't have the last word. No, conflict doesn't have the last word. No, racism doesn't have the last word. No, any of these evils, they don't have the last word. And that's why at the end of every service, I give a benediction. It is practice for the life of the Christian, knowing that at the end of this world, there is a good word declared over the people of God from God's own mouth. And that is a word of grace and love and renewal. You must think on the true, the honorable, the just, the pure, the lovely, the commendable, what is excellent. And this even includes, friends, common grace and looking out into the world at the good things that are happening. 
the beautiful things. As an example, there are things happening in STEM, the sciences, technology. There are good things that are happening that are improving the well-being of human life. Praise God. All truth is God's truth. That's good stuff. The excellent, the true, the beautiful, the good. This is the focus here. And those are counter thoughts that help us to be a people that pushes back the darkness and the evil in this world. And ultimately, y'all, everything that he lists here, when you get down to it, thinking on these things ultimately brings you to Jesus and all his promises. The true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, what is excellent, praiseworthy. It brings you to Jesus. But finally, a a brief point. We must practice the presence of God. There is a book by an old school Christian named Brother Lawrence. It's a classic. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. And what he means in this book, the the idea of practicing the the presence of God, is the practice of living in the presence of God, living our day-to-day with a recognition of God's presence, that he is near, not far, that he's right here when you are confronted with the discipline issue with your child. It's like imagining God, you live under the, the, the gaze of God. He's present there with you. Listen, that's what enabled Christians in the South during the 60s and the 50s to stand in the face of evil. They knew God was with them. And that's why they were able to resist non-violently. And that's why they could say things like, don't ever let someone drag you so low as to make you hate them. And this is as people were attacking them and killing them and shooting them. They drew on the deep resources of their faith. They drew on the hope of God. That's why Fannie Lou Hammer, a famous civil rights icon, when dragged into jail with her friends for fighting for voting rights for African Americans in Mississippi, as she was being beaten in the prison cell down the hall, her friends, as they listened in horror, all of a sudden heard her saying, Jesus, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Where do you get the resources to live in that way? To know the presence of God, to practice his presence. He is with you. He is for you. To live under his gaze. Even as you work, as you neighbor, this helps you to be authentic and not be a pretender, a performer. You know how sometimes we do things when we think people are looking and it's going to get us a little cred? Yeah, there's someone looking. And it's your father who loves you. Not based upon how you perform, but live under his gaze and in his love. The God of peace and the peace of God will be with you. This is the kind of life we are to have in the, in the inside, y'all. This is the inner life. But we must practice the presence of God. And this matches up well with the call to prayer in the text, but it's a shift in our thinking. I'm not trying to be overly pietistic, overly spiritual. What I'm saying is that the 101 realities of the Christian faith matter for our real-time engagement in the world. So let's receive these things and live up into these things as his people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you.
that we have access to you. That is, that is remarkable. That is that we can come to the king of heaven when we can barely gain an audience with important people in this city without clearance and G15s. We are grateful to have audience with you as your children. And we are grateful that you hear our prayers and we are grateful that you are loving enough to not give us everything we ask for that would destroy us or leave us with flaccid, weak faith, but that you know just the right recipe to bring challenges and trials, to, to draw us to yourself, to mature us, to broaden the scope of our vision. Lord, we are grateful to belong to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to bring our cares and our anxieties to you. And we pray that over time, you would work on us and reshape and refashion us. We know it's not some magic pill, prayer. You are the prize in prayer. And so help us to commune with you, to live our lives day to day as if you are a real person walking with us through the day. Not to give you a nod in the morning and the evening and throw up a few brief words through today, but really to live in a spirit of conversation and communion with you. And when we want to spend our time rummaging through anxious thoughts or complaining about something, help us to even then be reminded that if we have time to complain about it, we have time to pray about it. And let our hearts be shaped by these things. We, we ask that you would help us to be a good news people in a bad news world until you come and make it right. We ask for this in Jesus' name.